Gina asks, does anybody need a Bible today? If you don't have one, um, if you don't own one, it's yours to keep as a gift. Um, the scripture will be on the screen. So, but there's, there's something about reading the actual Bible, though, not just on a screen, although that way you can look at it and ponder it, and if the person doing the slides isn't lining up with it, you have it in front of you. That happens sometimes, so. <clears throat> well, today we are starting a new book. So here at Metanoia Community Church, all of us, we go through um, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, books in the Bible, and we just finished the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and um, so we're starting Thessalonians, and uh, it's, I'm excited about this study. It's, it's kind of interesting. It's like all throughout this last month, um, the Lord just kept putting Thessalonians in front of me, like somebody would talk about it, or it would be in Scripture I was reading, and then for pastor's appreciation, I got a mug that had a verse on it, and I usually don't pick books to study by things like that, but it just seemed like it was the direction that the Lord wanted us to go. And then um, obviously for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, we'll be talking about the birth of Jesus. Um, but uh, let's go ahead and pray. And then um, the title of this message is just the introduction to the book of Thessalonians. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that it never turns back void. Thank you, God, that um, you have a plan for our lives. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord. And thank you for the work on the cross that you shed your blood for us. Um, and just thank you so much that we have the privilege to gather together and to celebrate you and to celebrate what you're doing in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you would just teach us through uh, this study today, that none of us would leave this place missing what you have for us. I thank you that you are faithful, God, even when we don't see things as we think it should be. And Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are at work, and um, just praise you and give you all the glory. And I just pray for those, Lord, that couldn't be here today, that you bring healing to them. And Lord, I just also... Uh, lift up missionaries all throughout the world, Lord, that you would be with the Todds as they settle in in Mexico, and uh, the Smiths who are going to Romania, and pray for my friends in El Salvador, and now Germany as well, Lord, you just be with them, and be with those that are in Ukraine and Russia, you will continue to strengthen your church there, continue to use your body, Lord, to do great things. Just thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> You know, it's interesting, a lot of times when we think about um, the Bible or church or, you know, circumstances where, you know, the gospel's being preached, and in our day and age, we, in America especially, we have a lot of conveniences with church. And um, believe it or not, the, the church really is birthed out of adversity, and um, it's birthed out of um, persecution. And so, as we get into Thessalonians, I wanted to kind of start, we're going to tell you the date. So, 1 Thessalonians was written from Corinth during Paul's 18th month stay there. So, the book of Thessalonians was written by Paul. 
Um, Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament after the Gospels. Um, God used him in a great way. And it's important to know, too, that, that Paul was, was a Pharisee. Um, he, he was against Jesus when he was converted. He was actually on the road to Damascus with a decree to actually kill Christians. And so it's fascinating to know how greatly um, God can use someone's life, even uh, though their, their history was scattered with destruction and sin and hurt and evil. And so Paul is just one of those people where all throughout his letters, he still, he lives with the reality of how humbled he is really that God would even use him. And uh, just kind of to give a little piece of Paul's personhood, um, uh, all scholars date this book that Paul wrote in the early 50s, not 1950, but AD 50. And it is probably safe to date the letter more precisely as AD 50 or 51. And that would have been only 20 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. And so a lot of the, the, the New Testament after the Gospels, we, we see the church birthed in Acts, and we see how these small um, congregations or fellowships or churches uh, are, 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 are established by Paul's ministry, and Timothy is a teacher in them, and, and all these different people that God uses. And so the books that we read through in, in the New Testament after the Gospels, a lot of them are their letters to these churches. And so uh, Thessal Thessalonia uh, was an actual location in Rome. Um, it was during Paul's second missionary journey uh, that the light of the Gospel first broke in on the darkness of Thessalonica. Sorry, Thessalonica, I called it Thessalonia. That would have probably been a different place. Um, after Paul and Silas had been released from jail in Philippi, they traveled to Thessalonica um, by way of Amphipolis and Apollonia. Uh, Thessalonica at the time was a strategic city. Um, there was converging roads that went through there, so it made it a very strategic place for business. So it was strategic both for commercial and um, politics. Um, it was the capital of one of the four Roman districts of Macedonia. So this is the location of Thessalonica. We're going to, by giving a, I'm going to give a backstory here of how the church of Thessalonica was actually birthed. Um, and we find that in Acts chapter 17, verse 1 through 15. Yes, I love it. Now, when they had passed through, as long as I don't sound like that to the adult, I'm good. Now, now, when they had passed through Acts chapter 17, verse 1, and we're reading about how the church of Thessalonica was birthed. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, this is Paul and Timothy and Silas. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So where he went to was the synagogue. The synagogue would have been a local Jewish meeting place to discuss things about God. Um, and so majority of those that would have been in a synagogue would have been Jews, not Gentiles, and they would have been folks that adhered to Old Testament law 
and they not necessarily would have been actually believers of Jesus Christ. And so Paul being um, a Pharisee and one who actually ran with this type of group um, before he was converted, whenever he went to a town, he would just kind of go where he was used to talking. And so he went to where people were though. So he went to where the synagogue was. So it says here, the pause, as, like in verse two. So um, uh, reason with them with the scriptures. Explaining and demonstrating that, that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And it's important to understand that when it says uh, Christ is speaking of that Jesus is the literal Messiah, the promise that God gave through the Old Testament that he was the Savior to save his people from their sins. So Jesus and Christ, Christ is not his middle name or his last name. It's speaking of his authority and deity as God. And, the, and those that the Jews knew that that there was a Christ, there was a Messiah that was prophesied about that was to come. And so Paul is telling them that Jesus, who he is preaching about, is literally that Messiah. <clears throat> Verse 4, and some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. So all you can, I want you to vision in your mind, um, this whole town being against this group of Christians in a mob. Anything you see on the news pertaining to a mob, nothing, none of it is calm. None of it is, 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 is congenial. There's nothing nice about it at all. Um, the, the Jewish leaders at the time that, you know, were against uh, who Christ was. Again, you see here that they persuaded these people um, to, to go against uh, Paul. So where'd they go? They went, to, they went to Jason, his house. And so the house, uh, and, I'm sorry, and sought to bring them out to the people. So Jason was a person where Paul and them were staying with. Verse six, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. That actually is an amazing compliment. These apostles, these disciples, these followers of Jesus were so impactful that the people that were on the outside of what God was doing looked at them as those who turned the world upside down for the Lord. So verse seven says, Jason has harbored them and, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying, there is another king, Jesus. And it's interesting how the Jewish leaders twisted, you know, the, the, the position that, that, that Paul was speaking of Jesus and made it a political thing to make even a more of an uproar and, 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 and create an accusation against Jason and those that were in his house uh, in, in, the, in, in the midst of the leaders uh, of the, the uh, Roman leaders Verse 8, and they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason, in other words, they took money from him like Baal and the rest of and the rest, they let them go. So, so they, so they get basically, you know, uh, put Jason and, and those who were harboring Paul and them on trial and said, fine, give us some money and we'll let you go. Uh, verse 10, then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. Sorry, I mentioned Timothy in the beginning, but it's Paul and Silas who are here. 
Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So they had to get out of there. They had to hide them and sneak them out of the town so that they wouldn't be captured and most likely killed. Um, when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So, so they went to Berea. And so again, here they are in the synagogue in verse 11. Um, and that was Paul and Silas. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So here we have another different group of Jews that were in uh, Berea, um, and Paul and Silas are preaching the gospel there as well, and those people receive the gospel. Verse 12 through 15, we finish here about the account of the Thessalonians, the, about those that are in Thessalonica. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowd. So these dudes in Thessalonica hated them. You know, it's the same group that crucified Jesus, the same group that pleaded for Barabbas, who was a murderer, to be released and Jesus to be crucified. And, and again, we always see opposition to the gospel, okay? Throughout, the, throughout we, we see an opposition. We see a group of people that stand against God, and we see a group of people that follow him. And so this is, this is the, oh, what's the word? This is how the church is birthed. The church is birthed in this attitude of how the public was. You'd have people that would listen and people that would not. And, and it was very tumultuous, um, verse 14, then immediately the brethren sent Paul away, go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So, well, Timothy was with them, sorry. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving command for Silas and Timothy, they came to him with all speed and they depart with all speed, they departed. So I wanted to read that to you so you understood the intensity of what happened when Paul came to Thessalonica and preached the gospel and that people got saved and then these leaders lifted themselves up against him. And so now we understand um, what had gone on in Thessalon Thessalonica with the church of Thessalonians. And it's interesting, the remarkable thing is that when Paul and Silas departed, they left behind a congregation of believers who were instructed in the doctrines of the faith and who were unmoved by the persecution they endured. It's very fascinating to me how when I read, you know, I am a very, sometimes I feel like I'm unstable. Um, sometimes I feel like I'm up and down and all over the place and, and I'm, I'm, my mind is bent by how I see and feel and think. And then I, when I read um, accounts of believers like those in Thessalonica, it just shares with me the reality that as a Christian, God promises us stability. And so for us as human beings, when our lives feel unstable, and if we're a Christian, it could be that we're relying too much on ourselves. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we pick up Paul... Silvanus, which is Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see here Paul, the writer of this letter, Silas and Timothy, the ones that carried the letter to the church of Thessalonica, 
the church, which is basically all that means is a gathering of people. Um, and and um, this church, the gathering of people, it's not an existence because of themselves, but it exists because God the Father and Jesus Christ as their Lord established it. This was not a heathen group that gathered. Um, it was believers in Jesus. Um, the Believer's Bible Commentary states this, the greeting, which states grace and peace, embraces the best blessings that anyone could enjoy this side of heaven. Grace is God's undeserved favor in every aspect of our lives. I don't know about you, but I, when I think about myself and I think about who God is and I think, Lord, wow, you, you let me live. You, you've helped me through so many things in my life. Why do I feel so bleak at times? And, it's, and he takes and he gives us his grace, this undeserved favor that he allows us to, 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 to be a part of our lives. In every aspect of our lives, God's grace exists. And then we see peace. This peace is the unruffled quietness which defies the crashing, crushing circumstances of life. Grace is the cause and peace is the effect. Paul repeats the dual divine names of, um, from God our Father and to the Lord Jesus Christ. He repeats these dual divine names as the co-equal source of these blessings. Grace and peace come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus. This time he's putting the passive personal pronoun our in front of our father of father. So he's placing ownership of that from the that the father God, God the father and our Lord Jesus Christ that this grace and peace comes from them. In verse 2 through 4 we read Paul writing, "We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers." Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. So Paul's telling them that he's remembering them in his prayers. This letter of encouragement is given to them by Paul to this, these believers in Thessalonica. And Paul gives great detail to their work in the Lord, and that he and those that are with him are praying continually with thankfulness for them. God calls Christians to pray without ceasing. We're to always be praying. We're to always be talking to God. We're to always be remembering God's faithfulness. And it's good to pray for others. Pray for those that, you know, are either walked away from the Lord or need to come to know the Lord, or pray for those that are in ministry. Pray for your parents. Pray for all your neighbors. We need to always be praying. And we see that all throughout the Bible, the importance of prayer, talking to God. God's ears are attentive to the cries of his people. We don't speak to a dead God. He's not an idol on a wall. He's true and living and has all authority. And he's intent to what his children want to speak to him about. So we see here that he's continually praying with thankfulness. And, and, and he makes this statement that, and, and, and he's thankful and make mention of, of, of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. So their, their faith, the Thessalonians, the church in Thessalonica, their faith produced work. It's not work that produces faith, but out of their faith in Jesus Christ, there was evidence of that faith being at work. And that's 
what should be in our lives as Christians. There should be evidence in our life that our faith is real and alive and active. Their labor of love. This word labor here is the Greek word uh, kopos. It means to toil, to labor to the point of weariness. So Paul's saying that they have this love for God in such a way that they serve him to the point of being weary. Our lives are to be an offering to God. He saved us from so much. How little is it for us to give him our time or our resources to further the kingdom? It's such a short thing for us to give to God for how greatly he's given things to us. So, the, so Paul's saying, hey, you know, you've, you guys are serving the Lord in, in this labor of love. And then he puts in, in this letter, in, in this patience of hope and, and hope in the fact that God is at work, this hope that we have, hope in the fact that Jesus Christ loves them. We have hope that he loves us. We have hope in the fact that one day we will see Jesus Christ face to face. Hope in the fact that the word of God is true and alive. And and if it is in the word of God, I can place all of my hope in it. So that's what hope is, our hope in God. We have hope in the fact of what Jesus did on the cross. Hope in the word of God being true. Hope that one day we will see Jesus face to face. We will be in heaven. Heaven is our hope. Our hope cannot be in this world. My hope can't be in my success. My hope can't be in the things that I'm able to accomplish. My hope needs to be 100% in Jesus. And I praise the Lord that he reveals things in my life that shows me that my hope is not in him so that I can go to him and confess my lack of hope in him so that he would give me that hope. And so we see here this, this recognition of what, and Paul's not just writing to the, to the Thessalonians, the believers in Thessalonica, to tickle their ears. He's writing because he understands that this is who they are in the Lord. And as I read through Acts 17, we see that this church was birthed in adversity and a riot happened. And we as Christians in America, we want everything comfortable. We want everything to tickle our ears and please our eyes. We are driven by, uh, by entitlement in America. And it has infiltrated the church as a whole. And I think that it's created a stagnancy amongst the body to where the body doesn't believe anymore that God's called them as a whole to serve him in the community. And so we read this and we should say, hey, Lord, is my faith, is there, is there works happening? Um, is there labor of love in my life? And do I have the hope that you've established on the cross and that my place is in heaven? Do I hope in these things? Because my friends, it's so easy to get clouded by everything else around us. So this hope is that it's in Jesus and this hope should produce patience in us. One commentator said, oh man, how difficult that word patience is to wait on God. We always think that he needs to do things, this, this, and this. You know, I want to get my hands in the middle of it. I want to make things happen. I want to connect these pieces together. And in God's economy, he says, no. He says, wait. So our hope should be in him because he is faithful. He is willing and he is able. Paul continues but remember this, that, that faith, love, hope, sorry, expounding on these verses, but remember that, this, that faith, love, and hope, 
that comes from our relationship with Jesus Christ will produce godly works, loving labor, and hope with patience. These are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not found in ourselves. Our flesh can't produce these things. Our human nature can't produce these things. Notice that these all are in Jesus Christ and seen by God the Father. We see that in, in, in the latter part of, um, of verse 3, um, that it's in our, they're found in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the sight of our God and Father. And so these attributes are found in our relationship with Jesus and they're apparent to God and Jesus also. He sees us. He sees these things. So Paul reminds the believers in Thessalonica in such an endearing way, beloved brethren, he states here in verse four, that they are chosen by God, as are all of you. And even if you haven't made a decision for Jesus, believe it or not, he's already chosen you. God's word says that he wills no one to perish, but all to come to repentance through Jesus. And so we have, when Jesus died on the cross, he elected all of mankind to come to know him. It's us who decide to not receive him. And in the grand knowledge of God, he understands all things all at once. He's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he, he's omnipotent, and he knows those who won't come to know him. But he doesn't will for anyone to not know him. His will is for all to come to know him. But it's man in our own will when we choose Jesus or we don't choose Jesus. And so Paul's reminding the Corinthians that there is evidence of this, that beloved brethren, that you are chosen by God. What an encouraging thing it would have been for, you know, this pastor who helped birth this church and he's telling them, reminding them, you know, you are chosen, you are elect. God himself has chosen you to be his child, to be a believer. So may this sink into you and I, to our very soul, that, 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 um, my beloved brothers and sisters, that you've been chosen by God. You are His. Amen. It's such a, a great thing to be reminded that we are God's kids. I think sometimes I sell God so short in my life. I filter God through my own eyes and through my own thinking, and it short-sides the reality that, that God is almighty and powerful and, and he lives inside of me by the Holy Spirit being in me, and I short-sight it by my own thinking. And how easy that is to do because there is persecution against the Thessalonians even at this time when Paul writes this letter. This is the purpose for this letter to the, the church of Thessalonica to encourage them because they were under persecution. It's amazing that we are his. Verse five, Paul continues to write, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So where it says by our gospel, Paul is not implying a different gospel, but preaching the same gospel as the apostles, the eyewitnesses of Jesus. The message of the gospel that Paul preached to the Thessalonians was not just some lecture. In other words, it wasn't lip service. That's why he says, we didn't come into you by word only. It wasn't some lecture where the words went in one ear and out the other or some sort of talking to them that had no application to their life. You see, it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that the gospel is applied to the hearer. The gospel moves with supernatural power. This power is God's power, not man's power. It's the power to set people free from hell and death. 
The Word of God moves in a person's life, revealing sin. If we don't come to a place of understanding that we're sinful, we will never recognize that we are in need of a Savior. And this should cause, produce conviction of our sin, and this should cause turning that into an action with understand, an action, and this understanding, which is repentance, the turning away from the direction you were going and turning towards God, making Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. All of this happens because of the power of the Word of God and the working of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. And Paul is saying here, look, this is what happened with you. That we didn't just talk to you to talk to you, but the power of the gospel, the gospel came to you in power and in the Holy Spirit. And this assurance that Paul speaks of in the latter part of verse five speaks of his own belief in what they were teaching them and that their lives lined up with what an obedient life lived for and what an obedient life looked like that was living for God. If a preacher does not have full assurance in what he is speaking, then he needs to get out of the pulpit. There's men that talk all day long that say all sorts of great things to all sorts of people with large crowds. And some of them do it just for money. Some of them do it for fame. But Paul's saying here, look, in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. In other words, what we were preaching to you, we believed 100% of what we were telling you, that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior. Remember, that was what the riot was about in Thessalonica. It was about Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah. See, there are those that were in existence at that time, and even in our day and age, that don't believe that Jesus is God and that He's the only way to heaven. Jesus said that He was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. It's very, it's very cut and dry. There's no other way to go to heaven. You know, there's churches out there that think that, it's, that that's not fact. There's people out there in churches that don't teach the Word verse by verse, line by line. They teach man's theory of God. The day that I stand here and teach my theory of God is the day you should throw me out the door and put somebody else in this place. God's Word needs to be taught appropriately, and it needs to be applied to our lives. Otherwise, it's useless. I was having a conversation with my neighbor about a different religion, and he was saying, yeah, they believe that Jesus is a prophet. And I said, yeah, but if, if, if Jesus isn't God, then He's just like a person doing some job around your house. If, if Jesus isn't God, then, then He wouldn't have been able to be crucified and buried and rose again three days later, and His death, burial, and resurrection would have no value. Um, and so, it's fascinating how we have to really… And I don't know why I was sharing that. I just got off on a tangent, sorry. That happens. Verse 6 and 7, we read here, Paul continuing to to write to the church of Thessalonica who they are and what happened with them. And he says, and you became followers of us and of the Lord. Now, some people, I, I want to, this isn't in my notes, but 
in the in the flow of the way Paul is writing, you have to remember that God places people in authority to share with them and teach them about God. And and their life needs to line up with God. And so when Paul says, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, it's not of us because of our greatness. It's of us because we're following God and you're following us because we're following God. Does that make sense? Okay. There's an importance. There are people in my life that I have followed because they were walking right with God. There's people in my life that I follow now because they're walking right with God. And so we see here Paul sharing with them, you followed us and of the Lord. You became followers of us and of the Lord. In other words, there was evidence in your life of following the Lord. And and he says, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believed. And it's fascinating. This verse six speaks of um, the affliction. When it speaks of that, it's talking about what happened that we read in Acts and how the church was birthed and how they were uh, received the word from Paul and them under great affliction, um, and yet they still followed. Like I mentioned, remember in Acts how we read about the riot and such. This church in Thessalonica was birthed in great affliction. They received the word of God, becoming believers, followers of Jesus Christ when great turmoil was created by some of the Jews who had gathered the evil men in Thessalonica to create a riot against Paul and those that were with him. These Jews hated the fact that, that, the G, that Jesus was being preached as the Christ. The promised one that was born of a virgin, lived among them, uh, did many miracles, was condemned to death, being killed on the cross, yet was innocent. Jesus Christ died on the cross and was buried in the grave for three days, then resurrected on the third day, being seen by the apostles and many others, thus fulfilling all the prophecies of the Old Testament, which the Jews knew yet did not believe. And so those were the ones who, they knew all of this. They knew all of this. Everything was spoken of that happened with Jesus. His virgin birth was spoken of in the prophets. Where he was born, the, what was gonna happen, everything. God revealed everything to his people. The Jewish people are God's chosen people. And when Jesus came, they denied who he was. Jesus even said, the day of my visitation, you ignore me and yet you will receive somebody else speaking prophetically about the Antichrist. When the Antichrist comes, they'll receive him as somebody who can fix everything. That'll only last for three and a half years. Then God's wrath will be poured out. Thank God we won't be here. But it's amazing what the Lord allowed Paul to speak to these people, the Thessalonians, and how in this affliction, they re- with joy of the Holy Spirit, that, 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 that joy of the Holy Spirit stood out to me. There is a great joy that is given to those that make Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of their lives. And when I read this, I thought, Lord, am I living with the joy of the Holy Spirit in my life? Are you living with the joy of the Holy Spirit in your life? I don't know that I have been. I think I've, I've missed the mark on this. I'm, I, this caused me to just start thinking through like how my mind works and what I receive and, and think and how I treat others. And I'm, am I really living as a Christian with this joy and, and the Holy Spirit? And if these people in Thessalonica who came to know the Lord enduring a riot and such persecution and they have joy in the Holy Spirit and I'm a selfish, self-centered, uh, egotistical American who's been fed the Bible since I was five years old, what's my excuse? 
And I'm speaking of me, not you. But do I have the joy of the Holy Spirit in my life? There's great joy that's given to those that make Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of their lives. The working of the Holy Spirit in a person's life brings joy in spite of conflict and affliction. The believers in Thessalonica became examples. This is quite fascinating. Verse 7, the believers in Thessalonica became examples to all Macedonia and Achaia who, who believe. Their walks with their walk, their relationship with Jesus Christ produced godly examples for others to follow. As Christians, our lives should have godly examples for others to follow. Our lives should produce this as well as we follow Christ. Verse 8, we read, Paul writing to them, continuing with this letter, for from you, this is fascinating, you guys, listen, for from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. It's fascinating to me where it says your faith toward God has gone out. It gives an example that there needs to be a working and an outwardness of our relationship with God. And Paul's ascribing to them this, this testimony of their relationship with God, not only being in Macedonia where, where, where Thessalonica was, but to every place. In essence, Paul's saying that the word of God was being spoken of through these believers in such a powerful way that it was going out beyond Macedonia and Achaia to every place. This faith in God that, that this church fellowship had was in such great effect that Paul had no need to go and share about God to anyone in that area. And for Paul, he's just like, I'm out of a job. I don't need to do this anymore. And that's like... I, uh, the heart of a pastor is like, hey, if, if somebody wants to step in and take over and we'll go do some more work and expand the kingdom of God, praise the Lord. It's interesting that this is not just their conduct, but they were speaking the word of the Lord with boldness to anyone and everyone they could possibly get to. I've heard it said, as Christians, we need to come back to our first love. Are you in love with Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you count him as your friend? Do you have an active relationship with him? Even as Christians, our relationship with God can become dormant, can become stagnant and stale. As non-believers, without Jesus, we don't have a relationship with God. But I find it fascinating how this small little body of believers that had no long-term training, majority of us who've been in the church as kids, we've got more Bible training than this group does. But we see here that the Holy Spirit empowered them in a great way. And why was that? Why did God allow this little group in Thessalonica to be used this way. Well, this next verse kind of gives a key to that. Verse 9, For they themselves declared concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. And listen to this, you guys. 
how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to underline this part and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You know what an idol is, right? Do you guys know what an idol is? It's anything that we place in extreme importance in our life. Idols can, by other standards, can look fine um, by other people. But as I read this and I look at the Thessalonian church and, and how their life is, and, and you read this piece here, and for, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This means that their life, they, they, they worshiped idols. Their life sur was surrounded by idol worship. And yet when they came in contact with the gospel, they turned from those things. And so my question is, are there idols in our lives? Are there things in our life that are keeping us from walking in true power that God desires to give us? That joy, a sense of peace, knowing that there's grace from God for us. See, the Bible shouldn't just be something that we read and just, eh, blah, blah, blah. We need to look at it and let it wash over us. Um, in youth, we went through, uh, picked one scripture to, to read to them um, on Thursday. Super simple. And it's not on the screen. You don't need to go there. I'm just going to read this. And I asked them, I said, how important is the Bible to you? Like, what, what, what is the Bible? You know, God's Word, the Word of God. I, and I said, yeah, it, it is the Word of God, but, but, but we, we can ascribe the importance of the Bible because we know its title, but is it important to us? And why would it be important to us? Why would the Bible be important to us? The writer of Hebrews, chapter 4, Four, verse 12 says this, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So this isn't just a book. It's the living word of God. It's alive. In, in some, some commentaries have said that the actual supernatural essence of God dwells within the writings of the scriptures because man didn't write it. People say, oh, I don't want to read that. Man wrote it. No, God wrote it. God allowed man to put words down because God knows that we need words to hear, right? Isn't that kind? God's like, hey, I know you're going to need to read English. I'm going to give you my word in English, just like it's in Chinese and other parts of the world, Right? But it's not just a book. And so it's important for us to understand that when we read the Bible, that it reveals things in us. And it says, hey, look, you know what? Some of these things need to go away. Or like when I mentioned to you, like I read this thing about in, 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 in these verses about um, joy and the Holy Spirit. And it's like, there should be conviction in our life when things are missing in our life that God wants to have in our life. 
And there should be conviction in our life when the word of God reveals things that need to be removed from our life. God requires an action, whether it's moving towards getting rid of things or moving towards becoming closer to God by, by accepting that this is who I am in him. And so we see here in, in verse nine that the, the believers in Thessalonica became believers not because they just listened to Paul's word, not because they just put up with him, not because they wanted to be part of a group, not because they wanted to be part of a men's group or a women's group or a ladies' study or, or go out and feed people or any of those things, but because the word of God came to them in power and they saw something different and the Holy Spirit spoke to them and they didn't ignore the Holy Spirit and they said, we're gonna turn from our ways because they're empty and we're gonna turn to God because he's alive. And that's what needs to happen in our life on a daily basis. When as Christians, I don't know where all of us are at in our walk with God, if some of us know the Lord here or not, but as a Christian, we should always be preaching the gospel to ourselves. Jesus crucified, revealing the truth that I am in need of a Savior every day. And if you don't know the Lord, Jesus crucified in the truth and revealing that you are in the need of a Savior today. And then from that moment on every day, the reality that Jesus loves us and that he has a plan for us and that he has a purpose and it's great and it's full of power and joy and it supersedes circumstances Now, does everything always go our way? No. Do we always have patience? No. It's where we need to rely on the Lord and trust that he's at work because he's God and he's a loving God. So we see here in nine, they turned away from their idols and where did they go? They served the living, true God, the true and living God, the living and true God, sorry. Verse 10 and and then it continued, Paul continued, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Praise the Lord. Man, it's amazing. So these Thessalonians, they, they heeded the gospel that was preached by Paul. They left their idols and they left their idol worship and they turned to worship the true and living God, serving him, giving their life away to them because they had gained so much through Jesus. There was action to their faith. Spurgeon wrote this on the part to wait for his son from heaven, verse 10. Oh, this is a high mark of grace when the Christian expects his Lord to come and lives like one that expects him every moment. I read this, I'm like, I don't live like Jesus is coming right now. I live like, what's next for lunch? living as one who expects him to come every moment. If you and I knew tonight that the Lord would come, and obviously Spurgeon was preaching in the evening, if you knew, if you and I knew today, this morning, I'll just put those words in there, that the Lord would come before this church service was over, in what state of heart should we sit in these chairs? If we knew that Jesus would come by the time this church service was over, what state of mind would we sit in these chairs? In, in that state of heart, we ought to be. We should always be reflecting and revealing, Lord, am I right with you? Where do I need to get right? What needs to be? God, if you're, God's word says that he comes like a thief in the night. In other words, no one's gonna come when Jesus, no one knows when Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, your options are over. 
It's amazing. Continuing to expound here, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, proving that he has the power over death. We see here that not only was Christ raised from the dead, but that Jesus Christ delivers us from the wrath that is to come. That's where Paul's writing, to wait for his son from heaven. So in other words, to be expectant that Jesus will return like he said he would that God had raised him from the dead, that even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come, the wrath to come is the righteous wrath of God. So Jesus not only sets us free from our sin, but delivers us from the righteous wrath of God. The righteous wrath of God that will be poured out upon the earth. The righteous wrath of God that is against sin and all those that, listen, you guys, all those that practice sin. When I say practice, I mean those that willfully decide to not choose Jesus. They stand condemned already. I didn't write it. God's word speaks it. He makes it black and white. There's no gray area in this. God made a way, though, for you and for I through his son, Jesus Christ, for us to not be under the wrath that is to come, but in all sense and in all reality, he has delivered us from the wrath of God. It's an amazing thing what God has delivered us. And so we see here Paul closing in this first piece of 1 Thessalonians, the first chapter, this piece here that just ascribing that Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. What a recognition that Jesus is coming back soon and that he has done great things in our life, setting us free, and that he has delivered us from the wrath of God. There's only one that can deliver us from this, and that's Jesus. God provided a way for us to be set free from sin and death and being separated from God for eternity. And it's an amazing thing. And if you don't know Jesus, today is your personal Lord and Savior. Today is the day of salvation. And if you'd like to come to know the Lord and you need prayer for anything, come and, and, and talk with us after the service. And if the worship team could come forward, we can close in one song. And I'm gonna close in prayer. Jesus, thank you so much for your mercy and your grace, Lord. Thank you so much for the testimony of, 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 the, of, the, of the church of Thessalonica. And how even in the middle of of trials and turmoil, Lord, you create great beauty, Lord. And you use these believers, Lord, who probably were under teaching of Paul for maybe three months. And you use them in a great way, God. And I pray that you would use us in a great way, Lord. If there's things in our life that we need to get rid of, I pray, Lord, that you would bring serious conviction to our hearts and minds that we lay things down at the cross. And Lord, I pray for those who don't know you. Holy Spirit, that you would bring conviction of sin and conviction of necessity to believe in Jesus. Just thank you again for this day. Praise you and give you all the glory in Jesus' name, amen.